I wanted to start uh, the, the, this evening with a, with a confession. And, you know, several, uh, several decades ago, I did um, uh, something that many people might find um, uh, 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 very embarrassing. So you might call it youthful exuberance, or you may just call it a sort of embarrassingly um, uh, naive failing. Uh, but during the 1980s, um, I went off to university to become, of all things, a statistician. So, whilst I am going off doing things with numbers, uh, uh, Mandy, um, anything you'd like to say? Well, yes, Craig. I, I did have a confession, but now I know that you're a statistician, I feel much better about being an economist. Um, and in my defence... A health economist, which I always seen as the caring side of economics. So uh, Craig and I are going to give you a little bit of, of a story, really, about uh, health economics and health services research at the University of Aberdeen and what led to that award. So to get you in the mood, I want you to take your minds back to the 1970s and 80s. Now, I apologise to those of you who weren't born then, and you may find some of what I'm going to say really quite bizarre, but this will take some of you back. It definitely took me back when I started reading to my childhood. Well, a little bit older than that, actually. Actually, the 70s, when the unit started, was the year that we joined the economic community, but I'm going to move on from that one very quickly. A bit of fun. Music was great in the 1970s. Do you remember Scotland's own Bay City Rollers? Yes. We also had ABBA, and I think we moved on to punk in the 1980s. We had great clothes. Flares. Do people remember flares? And it was also a time when kids used to play outside. No gadgets. Well, there were gadgets in the name of skateboard, chopper bike. Um, what was that thing you used to bounce on, Craig? Space opera. Do you remember all those things? Weren't they great? And there were also some great developments. Um, there was a, well, there was a coming down of the Berlin Wall. There was the World Wide Web in the late 80s. Yes, some of you youngsters, when I started working, there was no such thing as asking Google. Um, so those were some of the things to remember. But it was also a difficult time for anybody who lived through the 70s and 80s when we see massive inflation, strikes, the winter of discontentment, power cuts... And those difficulties that existed in society played themselves out in the NHS. So whilst there was an ambition that within the NHS, this free publicly provided healthcare system could be given to all, there were clearly challenges. And at this point, I'll pass over to Craig. So there were a couple of important reports that came out during the 80s, uh, early 80s, late 70s. The first of which was the Black Report. You may or may not have heard of the Black Report. Um, but the Black Report came out in 1980. And, and it was the first time that people had really observed that there were clear inequalities in the healthcare system. So by that, I mean that the poor people were having poorer outcomes and that the poorer people were having um, um, sort of uh, worse access into the, into the health service. So it was a very important uh, uh, publication in 1980. 
And then a couple of years later, there was also another major report that came out, which was the Griffiths Report. And so again, in the early, early, early 80s, the Griffiths Report was looking at the, the organization of the NHS and, and was consi considering the sort of workforce that, that, that was required. And the, the Griffiths Report so sort of, it can be encapsulated with the one statement that they had, uh, that they made as a sort of summary, which was that the, if Florence Nightingale was wandering around the corridors of the NHS today with her lamp in hand, then she'd no doubt be searching to find who on earth is in charge. So that was the sort of damning indictment that they'd been making uh, uh, back in the 80s. But of course, it wasn't all doom and gloom. There were, there were massive advantages going on there. We were improving mortality, um, uh, ch uh, child mortality was, was significantly improved during the 70s and 80s. Uh, we also were, were having rapid development of new technologies, uh, new devices, new procedures, ways of doing things. It was really true, true innovation was going on very much during that time. Um, for example, here, the MRI scanner came about in the 1980s. I mean, I don't know if you did know, but it was, it was Aberdeen that developed the MRI scanner. So that came out in the 1980s. Uh, do any of you know Barney Clark? If I said Barney Clark to you, does anybody know who Barney Clark is? Anybody? Not even you, Elizabeth? Don't know who Barney Clark is. So Barney Clark was the first person to have an artificial heart transplant, and that was in 1983. And the reason really for raising Barney Clark in 1983 um, it's really, it really signifies a lot of the changes that were going on or, or, and that would go on within the health service. So in, in 1983, Barney Clark, he was 61 years old, he was a dentist by profession. He couldn't have his heart replaced with just a heart transplant. So with the new devices had come in place for, for what would be this um, uh, new novel approach to trying to uh, re replace his heart. Um, now, Bar Barney survived after the, that transplant for 123 days. And the, um, the, the, the surgeon in charge, I just want to quote, because I just had this written down, just to quote, this is what the, the surgeon had said at the time about the ethics committee were clear. Success was defined as Clark coming out of surgery alive. Now that shocked him, as he said. My idea of success was to give Barney some quality of life, get him up and moving around and living a bit longer. So I use that to try to illustrate, I guess, that what, what the values were like back in the 1980s and that perhaps have values changed in the way that we perceive the, the healthcare system today. I'm posing that just as a, as a thought for you. And I've got one thing I do want to read out for a hand back to Mandy, which is the following then on this. So, yet alongside growth and frequent acclaim, the last three to four decades have brought the service many new challenges. For example, the aging of the population has required more of its energies to be focused on the difficult health problems associated with the chronic disabling diseases of later life whilst the gradual emergence of a less controlled, more individualistic social environment has meant that the British healthcare consumers have become less tolerant of inconvenient or inadequate patterns of service. 
Such trends, together with the tensions like those associated with the NHS industrial disputes and structural reorganisations, have led a number of commentators to believe that the NHS has reached a crisis point. Some even suggest that it is near to collapse. Now, is that an indictment of the situation that we're in just now? Does any of that resonate with you just now on what happens? That was written in 1982. Um, so so many, of the, many of the issues and comments, etc., that we're talking about and we were talking about today and will talk about um, after coffee and the break um, are very much, were very much alive and relevant 40 years ago and recognised. Okay, so let me take you back again. We're in the late, well, we're in the early, early 70s, and we've clearly got this challenge in the NHS. Now Bevan had this great idea, of which we all must agree it was, free NHS at the point of consumption. But there were beginning to be big challenges in meeting the demands. We had developments in technology, heart transplants, different transplants, the first IVF baby, intensive care units available nationally. And the question was, how can we continue to meet this demand? Well, I'm delighted to say we were privileged to have a very visionary and inspirational professor at Aberdeen University in the early uh, 1970s, professor, the late Professor Roy Weir. And Roy had a vision. It might seem really obvious to you now, but at this time it was really a vision in the early 70s to bring together economics and medicine. That was Roy's vision, and together with Professor Elizabeth Russell, who I'm delighted to say is here, and the late Professor Gavin Mooney, they approached the, the Scottish, I think there was a Scottish Home and Health Department then, let's just say the Scottish Government, to fund a three-year project around bringing economics and medicine together. And this was really to start looking at some of the challenges that were being faced. How can we define health outcomes? What is of value? I think one of the key things was to recognize also that economics isn't just about cost. One of the biggest challenges is around valuing benefits. And indeed, that's what, what um, both our units have done over many years. So in 1974, we've seen the first health economics project at the University of Aberdeen, a three-year project. And that was the forerunner of the Health Economics Research Unit, which following the success of that three-year project, Roy Weir, together with Elizabeth and, and Gavin Mooney, put a grant application to the Scottish Government to fund a health economics research unit. The first in Europe, co-funded by the Scottish Government, and the unit still exists today with funding from the University of Aberdeen. And, and so what? So what have we achieved? I think one of the, the the, thing, the, the key things in those early days, I mean, the whole kind of idea of bringing economics and medicine together was actually challenged by some people. It was argued to be unethical. And I can remember teaching in the mid-late 80s um, and the whole concept of, of making choice, value in human life was very controversial. In a way, I don't, I don't witness that today when I'm teaching. I think people are much more understanding of the need to make decisions 
decisions. But in the 1970s and 80s, the Health Economics Research Unit were very influential in raising the debates around what we mean by outcomes and how can we value outcomes and actually in some ways coming up against clinicians who to some extent had been, you know, uh, had been pretty skeptical about an NHS because of the fear of taking control away. And now there was challenges to clinical measures of value. So it was a really interesting time and debates that continue today about what it is we should be valuing. To look at just one example of a policy that Heru in the, in the 80s uh, contributed to, um, that was the, the national policy of breast cancer screening. We see it played out today. All women between 50 and 70 uh, offered three, uh, screening every three years. That was a policy that had health economic input into it in the 80s and was implemented. And of course, now we, we hear discussions around, well, is that a good policy? What are the benefits? What are the risks? And economics as a uh, technique and as a discipline can feed into those discussions. I think thinking back to the 80s, the 70s and 80s, one of the other key contributions of the Health Economics Research Unit was the introduction of what we called a correspondence course in health economics. Now, it would be an online course, and indeed it is an online course now. But this is a course, we had the remit of not, both, of not only developing and applying health economics and informing health policy, but also of capacity building, of training people to think economics, to help with those decisions. So we introduced this distance learning, uh, sorry, correspondence course. And as it happened, totally uh, by chance, I had a phone call today, and actually I very rarely pick my phone up, but I thought I'd fancy a chat today. I'll, I'll see you there. I just didn't recognize the number. There was a guy from Germany who said to me, 20 years ago, I did your, your correspondence course, and he was wanting to know if it was still on the go. He was wanting colleagues to do it. But he went on to tell me very proudly how 20 years ago, he was the only health economist in Switzerland. He'd done our health economics uh, correspondence course, and he was therefore tasked with making national decisions. Um, so he was very proud of his, uh, his recommending that women should have a, have a, a second ultrasound in pregnancy. So it did make me think, actually, to try and grasp the impact of that distance learn of that correspondence course, when we've trained over a thousand people, um, would be very difficult. So the 80s takes us into, Heru was set up in 1977. Eleven years later, the Health Services Research Unit came about. So now we're at 1988, and the, the Health Service Research Unit came about. And why that came about was there was a recognition that, no offence, Mandy, but there was a recognition that health economics alone with medicine was not going to, uh, to solve many of the issues that I already raised um, um, earlier through a lot of those talks. And so the Health Service Research Unit came about with a, with a remit to, um, to look for... Um, to, to look for beyond the sort of just value and health economic side and to ask, well, actually, what is the effectiveness of the interventions and changes that we're putting in place? How efficient are they? Which links back to the, 
uh, to some of the uh, health economics issues. But most importantly, we were also tasked with the remit to look at how could we try to en enable proven changes to happen better, to get into the system. So what I mean by that is when we knew, knew that things worked, they worked for people and patients, but they're not being used in the health service um, appropriately. How could we make the health service change changes in such a way that that could happen? So the health service research unit came about in uh, 1988. Some of the early things that we were very well known for back in those days, there was a recognition that, uh, quite clearly a recognition that whilst drugs were very much being uh, 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 governed and monitored very, very closely across the world. Um, nothing else in the healthcare system was being governed at that level. If you had a new surgical procedure, you could just go ahead and do it on a few people. Um, if, you had, if you had a new, a, a new type of device, you could just go ahead and, and, and use it. If you decided to reorganize the service, you'd just go ahead and you could just do it. There was no governance um, 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 of those types of things. And so we took the opportunity to do that. And we started and we, we enabled many of the, the first um, um, evaluations of these new procedures. So keyhole surgery. The unit in here was one of the first centres to be evaluating by a rigorous, what's called a randomised control trial um, of keyhole surgeries. So we were using very novel um, um, techniques that had been applied in, in drugs, but we were now applying it across the whole NHS and all the procedures within the, within the NHS. Stand back. Okay, so where are we now? We've done the 70s, 80s, so I joined the Health Economics Research Unit in 1987. I went up for a year. I was working, I post my master's in Sheffield, got the train, thought, oh, that's a long way away. I think I'll go up for a year. And here I am 31 years later. So it's been wonderful to work at the unit for, for all of those times, um, progress through the ranks, and now I'm delighted to to direct the unit at such a successful time of being awarded the Queen's Anniversary Prize. But during that time, it's interesting for me to kind of reflect and think, well, how have we impacted on policy? What difference have we made? And I can just point to some national policies um, that will affect all of us who live in Scotland and, and note that the unit have contributed to those. So one policy was the introduction of free personal care uh, in early 2000s. Economics fed into that decision. Um, another policy in early 2000, banning smoking in public places. Again, economics fed into that decision in the Health Economics Research Unit. More recently, minimum, the introduction of minimum unit pricing. Again, health economics pet played in. I think one of the really important areas of research that we work in and that we're quite unique in terms of health economic uh, expertise is in workforce economics. And we have done work to look at the challenges that we face in terms of ensuring that we have the workplace, the, the right people in the right place. Um, how can we ensure that GPs will work on the Outer Hebrides? They're fantastic to take your camper van at summer, but it seems that people don't want to go and live there. But how can we try and incentivize people? Um, and health economics can feed into that. 
Yeah. And I, I think one of the areas where we've had the biggest impact is actually in this whole discussion around where is it or, or what is it that's important to patients and the community in the delivery of healthcare. And the Health Economics Research Unit are internationally recognized for developing approaches to economic evaluation that take into account a person-centered approach. And in a time when Scottish government are saying we need person-centered approach to valuation, then this is, I think, a crucial role for the unit. And indeed, the Health Services Research Unit have done work around patient reported outcomes. Craig. Uh, thank you, Mandy. So, you know, present day, what have we done? Since we've, since, since we've been around the last 30 years, We've put 50,000 people through, um, through studies, various studies um, of new te techniques and technologies. We've done it across 1,600 different sites all over the world uh, in a whole variety of different, different countries and places. Um, some of the, the, the policies, the things locally that you may be aware of and you'll have seen in the news, things like that we've, we have a robot here that does surgery, so robotic surgery. Um, uh, very much that was, um, uh, much of our work has changed that, the, what, how effective is the robot, uh, how many should you have, where should they be, that, that's been picked up internationally now, so a lot of our work is changing guidelines and policies um, across, across the globe on robots. Uh, the new trauma, trauma service that was just a couple of weeks ago announced, we've informed that decision and how things should be organised around, uh, around trauma services and, and uh, ambulances and helicopters. Um, some, of, some, of the, some of the more personal things is something I'm sure that you're all aware of. Do you all either have teeth or have had teeth? So we very much revolutionised and changed uh, dental policy across, uh, across Scotland and worldwide. We've done it with children to begin with, which was the place in fissure sealants on children. So some of you may have had children who've been asked when they were only maybe 10 or 11 that they require their teeth to have some sort of sealant thing put on, put on the back of it, of their teeth, and that was supposed to protect their teeth. Well, it might interest you to know that actually there's only something like 8% of children in Scotland were getting this, this known um, um, effective treatment on the backs of their teeth. So we did a study, we showed that you could pay and do some education and that you could, you could very much get, get dentists and the um, uh, uh, parents and children to change their practice and actually get these put on their teeth. So since we've done that, there's now been 20 odd thousand children every year are now getting this placed on their teeth. That's an example of immediate policy change. We showed that result at a little conference with the, with the Scottish government and various people there. And then as I came out of the conference with the um, deputy chief dental officer, they went, that works, doesn't it, Craig? I said, yes. He said, they took out, they took out the policy that was already and they hand wrote, they had the legislation for Scottish government and they hand wrote it in red pen we now need to do this into policy and change, change practice. It was immediate implementation of, of research findings. So we've done that. How many of you have a scale and polish? Do you go to the dentist to get a scale and polish? Do you know what evidence there is that that works? That that's doing any good for you? 
There isn't anything. There is now, there was one major, major study that we have done and we finished about a year ago. And that's changed policy now as well. You may be turning up to your dentist and not getting a scale and polish. I apologize profusely if that is the case. Um, but in many ways, I've kind of done my job if that did happen. So we could, we could talk about that. So, you know, we're really trying to change, to change policy and people in, pra in practice within Scotland. Andy. Okay, thank, thanks, Craig. So uh, I, I think a key, a key issue that comes up for both Heru and Husru is one of value. How can we value uh, interventions? What is important? What factors should we take into account? And the dental study actually is a great example because whilst it was shown clinically that there was no value in the scale and polish, patients really valued it they got value from having their scale and polish and feeling good about their teeth. So, yeah, what is the objective of the NHS? And because uh, there was an increase in welfare of society from people feeling better. And of course, there are no right or wrong answers. We have to decide as a society on what principles we want to allocate our resources. So we have bodies such as the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence and in Scotland the Scottish Medicines Consortium and the Scottish Health Technology Group who have to make decisions about what drugs, devices and interventions they should um, recommend for funding in the NHS because the reality is we cannot do everything. And that raises challenges. I don't know if you've ever put on the radio and you've heard a bit of a headline, SMC recommend this drug for breast cancer isn't funded. And there's usually some economics behind that. And of course, it's, it's very challenging and difficult. Um, but I think that the key concept in, in economics is what we call opportunity cost. When you do something, when you do one thing, you give something up. So I'm not sure if there's any health economic students here. But I'm going to give you a tip here. If you're ever doing a health economics exam and you don't know the answer, put opportunity cost on every second line, put a few words around it and you're bound to do well. Remember opportunity cost. So what, what we're going to do now is kind of focus in on this, on this issue of value and look at, put, put you in the position of a health policy maker or a member of the, of the communities whose views are wanted on how to allocate resources. So we've got an exercise and we'll break for coffee and you'll see that there's four posters around the room and there's also um, a leaflet on your desk, on your table, sorry. So this describes four patients. So firstly, we have 18 year old Steve. Steve is a victim of a car accident. He has severe facial scarring and serious psychological problems as a result. This has prevented him from continuing his education. Plastic surgery would correct the scarring and help him with his mental health problems. That's Steve. We also have Daniel, eight-year-old Daniel. He was born with the bone bones of the spine not properly formed, around, uh, known as spina bifida. The condition causes bladder and bowel control difficulties and paralysis of the legs. There is a new experimental surgery that has a probability of one in five to improve his mobility so that he will no longer require his wheelchair. We also have Joanne. 
Joanne is 42 years old and has no dependents. She no longer takes drugs. She has just been diagnosed as HIV positive and infected with hepatitis C as a result of her drug taking. Treatment is available, which is successful in three out of four cases. This would extend her life expectancy and minimize her symptoms. And finally, we, we have Marianne, who is a 65-year-old woman who needs a hip replacement. She has waited 16 months for the surgery and soon will no longer be, be able to live alone. Her only son lives 200 miles away. The hip replacement would allow her to live independently. Four patients. The question Craig and I ask you is, who would you treat with a limited budget?